It's just law enforcement starting to really get creative with using on-chain data to their advantage. I think there's been this narrative that blockchains help bad guys, but actually blockchains help good guys. Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Happy New Year, everyone. This is our first episode of 2024, and we're taking a look back at the last year in crypto. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend and occasional co-host, Chainalysis Director of Research, Kim Grauer. We cover a wide range of topics, including the recent run-up in crypto asset prices, the return of ransomware attacks, the popular scam tactics of 2023, global adoption trends, and perhaps most importantly, the increased focus by law enforcement on disrupting crypto crime. And after the episode, if you'd like to go deeper on any of these topics, then you definitely must attend the Chainalysis Links Conference, which is coming back to New York City on April 9th and 10th, 2024. We've got a terrific lineup of speakers, and right now you can buy a ticket at early bird prices. But get it done today before prices go up. As always, the link to register can be found in the show notes. We've got a special episode today. My occasional co-host and director of research at Chainalysis, Kim Grauer, is joining us on the show. Kim, how you doing? I am very excited to be here. This is a fun episode to record every year. Steven and I just got the Spotify wrapped, and at least on the Spotify channel, you and I had one of the most popular public key episodes of 2023, the last time we did one of these roundups. So I'm expecting great things here. I don't know about you. No pressure. It was the, the crime one, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I mentioned the people love their crime. They do. <laughs> Crypto crime in particular. Well, it's timely because we're getting ready to start publishing the 2023 crypto crime report. I think we put out one preview section here before the holidays as a teaser. But as soon as we get back uh, in the new year, it's going to be full throttle crime statistics for the masses, right? We've been heads down for two, three months now. And actually, it kind of percolates throughout the year as well. And this is the exciting time when all the numbers are coming together. So we're learning about what we're seeing in real time now and really everything is just starting to come together and then you will be inundated with section after section at the start of the year maybe 10 maybe 12 sections this year and it's it's going to be a really exciting crime year to report upon I can't wait. Now, I thought today we could maybe do a roundup and look back over the last year cuz there's been a ton of stuff that happened in crypto Maybe the biggest story is the asset prices are back. I was looking at some numbers this morning on coin market cap. You and I could have gone and bought a whole Bitcoin for about $25,000 a year ago. Today it's trading at over 42,000. What is going on? Actually 435 as of looking at it right now. So well, it's definitely a breath of fresh air and kind of finally we can as an industry um, really uh, breathe a sigh of relief a little bit after a tense what felt like multiple years of being in a bear market and wondering when things are going to turn and seeing this positivity is really refreshing. I think when people try to explain what's happening, there's really two directions that you can go. There's the what's happening within crypto to explain price changes and what's happening in kind of the general world. 
And before this, um, before we hopped on, I looked at, I just ran a correlation of Bitcoin ETH prices against the stock market. And those things are really moving together. So I think that does a lot of the work as well that we're seeing kind of global asset prices in general bounce back. And we've, we've documented this correlation in the past that crypto is a mature asset now. But then you can look at the within crypto kind of what's happening within crypto. And that's where you see the variation. So why is Bitcoin up or why is Sol, I think you set up 600% year on year versus other crypto assets. And I think you can tease out the within crypto stuff there. And from that, you might start to look to questions like, oh, there's been a lot of Bitcoin ETF talks, for example. And people have been thinking that it's about to happen. Some of these ETFs, there have been a lot of um, filings and there have been a lot of discussions and big institutions that have expressed their interest in Bitcoin in particular this year, which might explain why we're seeing this surge in Bitcoin. So I think you have those two narratives that can really help you flesh out what's happening. It's kind of dizzying to think about you know, something like Solana, which felt to a lot of people in the industry, I think it was it was seen as dead. In the wake of FTX, where there was all sorts of uncertainty around the role that FTX and, and Sam Bankman-Fried were playing inside the Solana ecosystem. They'd invested in lots of projects. They were obviously major token holders between FTX and Alameda. And it seemed like the ecosystem there had kind of flatlined for a little while. But it in the last few months, it would be hard to argue that it's returned with a fervor. I saw a stat the other day that says the DeFi trading volume in Solana actually surpassed ETH. So there's some real excitement there, uh, driven at least in small part by the new Bonk token, which has got everybody very excited. It's uh, it's December's version of, of the Pepe token from earlier in the year, maybe. Yeah, so that, that within crypto kind of soul specific. I also yeah. have always noticed the volatility in soul. So I get notifications whenever there's something, anything out of a 5% daily price range for top assets. Throughout the year, I almost am always getting a soul notification. I think there's a lot of soul volatility already, and it's a great asset to trade for that reason. But I don't know what, what's explaining this really sudden surge in the past week or a few weeks that are that's happening within Seoul. It's fun to watch. I think we're going to have to dig into it more in 2024 because I'm I'm interested to see how do you how do you bring in an ecosystem? You know, crypto is so narrative driven, right? It's when the story's good, the story's really good. And then when the story goes bad, you tend to lose focus and attention and I don't usually see it ever come back. And so this this return from the dead narrative it, it maybe warrants some further on-chain exploration to see if we can see any drivers of what's uh, what's creating that. We'll take that as a note maybe for future research. One of the other topics that I was thinking a lot about reflecting on the year is it seems like all around the world, government agencies have really stepped up to the challenge of illicit activity in crypto. I was kind of thinking about, you know, we started the year with a, a major takedown of an outfit called Bizlato that I think was laundering a lot of Russian uh, money. We saw big takedowns of uh, some of the larger ransomware rings like Hive, you know, TrickBot that was one of the big operators. They got sanctioned. So it seems like we've reached a level of maturity, not just with U.S. federal agencies, but European ones as well, where there's a real intense focus on trying to shut down some of the worst bad actors in crypto. What do you think? It would definitely be a year of law enforcement wins and proactivity. So we have, Bitslato is, is an interesting one because we've been tra tracking it for years. It's been a service that has been a major money laundering operation 
And we would point it out in our crime reports that, oh, we actually know what building Bitslato is registered in in Federation Tower in Moscow City. But we would have this question of, okay, well, what do you do about it? How do you shut it down? Like, what do what are the next steps here? You know, it's in Russia. It's receiving all of these funds. And so we kind of had an answer to that this year. And so Bitslato getting shut down and cashing out billions of dollars, mostly from, as you mentioned, Russian schemes. And then shortly after that, there was the Hive disruption, which was uh, a really, I would say this one was a creative effort by authorities where what they did was they seized the servers and were able to distribute decryption keys to reduce the the victims. And we saw another kind of creative ransomware reaction with the Dutch police in Deadbolt. This was one of my favorite stories. I mean, this is such a great good guys winning over the bad guys story. Go, Go ahead and unpack this one for folks. Yeah, it's just law enforcement starting to really get creative with the power with using on chain data to their advantage. I think there's been this narrative that on chain data, uh, the blockchains help bad guys, but actually blockchains help good guys because law enforcement in this case, they realized that there was a quirk in the code with the payments where when victims would send a ransomware payment to the deadbolt admin where the decryption key was was actually released before the payment was finalized. And so they could use that to their advantage to undo the payment after it was sent and then retrieve the payments from the victims by getting the decryption keys. So this with the Hive, where the the Hive um, authorities, they took over the servers and were able to distribute decryption keys quietly. I love these two cases because it shows creativity and it shows utilizing blockchain and data to to help victims and disrupt major operators. Yeah, we always talk so much about the technical sophistication on the bad guy side. But to me, this is really a great illustration of, you know, the hard work that law enforcement's put in, you know, recruiting expert technologists and then like putting them to work. And maybe, you know, there's a turning tide here where we've got some distinct advantage against the bad guys, which is great. Yeah, and there was also the major disruption of TrickBot. $833 million as of our last update had been received by that major cybercrime organization, which was, as of our last update, TrickBot was the second highest grossing cybercrime organization behind North Korea and had been associated with all types of ransomwares and was one of the biggest malware strain operators. And we saw that they were sanctioned and there was a big crackdown against TrickBot, which was great to see that effort. There were, you mentioned a few others, Sinbad most recently, uh, OFAC imposed sanctioned on Sinbad, which was another North Korea associated mixing service that we actually identified last Last year, as North Korean hacking groups are always the first to kind of adapt and to new. They're trendsetters. They They're said, trendsetters. "Oh, tor- there. <laughs> tornado cash isn't cool enough anymore. We're done with those guys. We've got we've got Sinbad. Sinbad's where all the all the cool uh, money launderers the go. Cool to work. money launderers use Sinbad, and we yeah. identified. We were calling them kind of homegrown mom and pop shops last year, and. Sinbad being not necessarily fitting within that, but there were others that fit that as well. We named a few in the crime report last year, but but Sinbad was becoming very apparently a big, big problem. And so to see how quickly we uh, OFAC was able to respond, shut that down, make money la- make the money laundering process more difficult was another really huge win for the industry. Yeah. 
There was a big conversation that we had during the year about the effectiveness of sanctions. I remember we published a blog kind of looking at a couple different cases where Treasury Department had applied sanctions against crypto entities. Some cases highly effective. In others, you know, like Garantex, I think is a big example of this. Russian exchange continues really to operate. Their customer base primarily in Russia. So a U.S. economic sanction kind of doesn't really have the effect that it might for a business that's connected to, you know, Western banking system or, or transacting in U.S. dollars. But an interesting thing just happened in the last few weeks where Tether announced they're now respecting these sanctions alerts and proactively freezing wallets containing funds that show up on the sanctions list. And I think this is a really interesting like evolution of the ecosystem where at one point in time, it was sort of this question of like, well, are sanctions actually going to be effective at deterring bad actor behavior, particularly if they're operating you know, outside of a jurisdiction that you know, responds to the United States or, or European entities? And for a while, the answer was no. But now where you have players like Tether saying, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you sanction a wallet, we're going to freeze it, we'll hold those funds. You've massively removed the, the profit opportunity, I think, at least for in that currency. So it'll be interesting, I think, next year to see if, if we see other providers start to follow suit, uh, whether that's DeFi platforms or maybe some of the other stablecoin issuers kind of taking lead from Tether on this. Yeah, it's kind of like they anteed up. They're at a poker table and they kind of threw more chips in. And they're, so they, they anteed up. And it goes hand in hand with the increasing dominance and importance of not just Tether, but stable coins for the industry. And the real fact that let's use all the tools at our disposal to, to stop this type of crime and where are the most effective levers that we can pull. And I totally agree that this is kind of a game-changing way to really reduce the profits that can be achieved from some of these types of criminal activities. Well, now, this year was not all about crime. Your team just finished publication of the Global Adoption Report. What were some of the big takeaways, maybe trends that changed over last year's report? Maybe just start with some of the highlights that came out of the research this year. I think that this has potentially become one of the maybe still second to the crime report, but up there in terms of a report that is really valued by the industry. Our research team has always chosen to research and pursue topics that the industry just needs to know about. And so this global adoption report, I think, addresses one of the biggest kind of black boxes that maybe regulators or policymakers have around the world, which is, well, how just are people using cryptocurrency? They kind of, some can't wrap their head. They're like, I don't use it. So people must not use it. And so this report we put out maybe five years, four, maybe four years, and it's trying to say, well, there to answer how people are using cryptocurrency, you have to look at the place where people are actually using cryptocurrency. And so what we found this year was that the fact was when we finished this report, it was mid-June, we were in a major bear market. So global adoption was down mid-year. I'm excited, going to be excited to do the next year report, but global adoption was down. But if you break out the regions of the world into low-income country, middle-income country, high-income country, there was actually a bounce back within the, um, the middle-income country, which takes up 
the vast majority of the population. And high-income countries and low-income countries were down. It wouldn't surprise you to know that maybe the United States was more impacted by some of the FTX stuff and some of these big spooking of some of these bigger institutions. But around the world, places like India, Nigeria, Vietnam, Ukraine, Philippines, we saw more of a bounce back by mid-year. And so in terms of which countries are at the top of the index, a lot of the times we see the usual suspects. And I think that's because crypto adoption is what you want is a steady, sustainable year on year increase of activity. You don't want like the big kind of sexy story of all of a sudden this new country is on the market because adoption is slow and steady and sustainable. And so it's really makes sense that we see the usual players at the top of the index. I'd say that what was cool to see was India top the index this time for the first time. And India is a really interesting market because of some of the regulation that's happening within India. But India has strong adoption in almost every kind of metric that we measure, whereas usually a country might be optimized for one type of use case, like the Philippines and gaming, or the United States and in institutional investment. Whereas India has strong adoption in retail, DeFi, overall centralized exchange activity. And when you talk to people in that region, you hear all those use cases popping up. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. I always say that you could do a dissertation on crypto adoption <laughs> in every country. <laughs> well, for anyone that's downloaded the report, it is it is dissertation length for sure. I've thrown it into an LLM just so I can ask it random questions when I'm trying to look up a fact. I actually think the first point you made there about even though asset prices were down for much of the year, the fact that we saw you know sustaining transaction activity in that middle income country segment is really interesting because to me that says they're using cryptocurrency for reasons other than simply a, a store of value, an alternative like investment vehicle, or kind of the fun speculation side of it. It's the case of, hey, I need to send somebody money for something and crypto payment rails are useful to me. I don't know that we actually got data that that necessarily like has indication on that point specifically, but that's sort of my, if I squint at what we're saying there, that was the takeaway that, that came to me. Yeah, definitely. And it also depends on the region as well. If we look at Latin America, or if we look at countries where there was, was a lot of currency issues, Turkey, Argentina, we see that stable coins are the most purchased asset on exchanges. So if you look at what is the most purchased asset in Turkey with the Turkish lira, it's by far and away gonna be a stable coin. And that gives you a strong indication of, okay, people are looking for a stable store of value. Yeah. By and large, you can draw out themes and people in my conversations with Latin America cared less about what's happening with the tech stack in blockchain and more about how, what you were saying, how can I send money to my friend who lives across borders? And you kind of remind me of another big theme, which was one thing I circle around each year and really want to one day get a good data set around our crypto gray market markets, so import-exports using crypto, and we talk to business owners in Hong Kong, for example, who are facilitating business operations of commercial goods across borders between Hong Kong and Vietnam and India using crypto and say and have indicated it's massive market. So it's there. In that case, are they using dollar-denominated stablecoins? I have the breakdown, and I do believe we put it in the report, Okay, but it was mostly tether and then there's a smaller fraction using bitcoin and eth and then you have the very small fraction 
of kind of longer tail assets, which they kind of don't necessarily yeah. engage with. Because I think this is one of the interesting things. Like if you look at stablecoin volume or the transactions that involve stablecoins as a percentage of total transaction volume across the major crypto ecosystems, I think the number is up around 60%. You know, almost yeah. two thirds of all transactions involve stablecoins, which I, I think surprises a lot of people. It's, it's definitely a shift from where we were just a few years ago. And most of the stablecoin assets are dollar denominated. So there's there's kind of two competing narratives that seem to come up here. One is like, oh, stablecoins are going to be disruptive to traditional economy. They're outside the control of the you know uh, central bank. Therefore, you know countries lose control over their their monetary policy. Not good for long term economic stability. On the other hand, I think for a lot of countries. Their goal is not to maintain stability in their local currency, but actually to move to dollar-denominated currency, right? We've seen this with the recently elected president in Argentina, I think, is, has declared his intent to dollarize the economy. So I think there's more to be researched here. Yeah, and, and I mean, that, to be frank, has massive economic questions that come with that on what that means for the U.S. dollar and what that means for the strength of the U.S. dollar as a global currency reserve. But no doubt if you want an up and well now a lot of charts are up and to the right because we're in happy times but in the bear market if you were still looking for that up and to the right chart it would have been around stablecoin adoption the number of active stablecoin wallets which are by and large mostly us dollar denominated stable coins but also specific a huge amount of tether activity all around the world and those are becoming kind of a part of crypto that is not just there's crypto and then a small fraction of stable coins it's becoming almost kind of the story and how we deal with that and what the implications of that are going to be sorted out but i think that you've pointed out some really important themes to pay attention to our list of research to do in 2024 gets longer the more we talk on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> so shifting topics again, one of the things that I had a guest on early in the year from our partner Intel 471, and I think he predicted that we would see the return of ransomware uh, in 2023 uh, after, after a momentary lull the year before. And I think that unfortunately came true this year. We've seen a big spike in ransomware activity, right? Yeah, ransomware is back. And starting maybe two months ago, we started to get concerned that this could be the, the biggest year ever for ransomware. Now we'll be crunching the numbers end of year and seeing kind of where we fall, but we're definitely up from last year. And we're analyzing the lull from last year as well, was it a lull? Or was it maybe disruptions that were highly effective from law enforcement? Or was it something else? And with that will allow us to understand why we're excelling again. Because if it was a lull, then there was something that worked. Were operators pivoting to different types of crime? And this is really, it's really important to understand what allowed us to go to reduce the amount of ransomware in the previous year so that we can kind of try and repeat that again. But unfortunately, ransomware is roaring back and we can see it in our real-time data. You know, every day we're seeing ransomware payments coming in. And there's a lot of reasons as to why that is. Stay safe out there, everybody. Don't click on that link. One of the other big topics we spend a lot of time on this this show talking about is pig butchering you know the the very specific kind of romance long game scam and other types of scams it seems like this has continued just to get bigger and bigger every year yeah there are many different types of scams a few years ago you would have probably really been focused on investment scams like 
plus token before that ICO scams. Now we're in a place where I don't want to say people have wised up because there's still times when you look at a, a crypto site and it looks really legitimate and it is legitimate for a while and then there's a rug pull so you wouldn't ha really have known that something was going to be a scam. But the pivoting that's happening is more towards these romance scams. We did a big case study that we released last week in the crime report. It was about approval phishing, which is technically a kind of a pig butchering scam because it required investing in one person to get them to trust you. And this was a $1 billion plus scam network that was just using one very one specific highly technical tactic to get people to agree to basically giving someone else the ability to move crypto funds on their account. They would have never known that they did this it's through a phishing link. And it's just one highly technical way that probably not a lot of people know how to do. And it was over a billion dollars associated with those types of pig butchering scams. So this is a big problem and it's happening not just in crypto, but in traditional you know, US dollars as well. It's kind of a existential fraud problem that are, we're facing because of the pervasiveness of the internet and the ease of transaction around the world. And the good news is with crypto, you can see a lot of the transactions, but I think that law enforcement around the world are kind of really struck with how do we, how do we stop this problem? Well, we saw China apparently made a pretty large move. They announced they had arrested 30,000 people in a takedown of some of these industrial scale call centers that were running some of these larger scams. Now, I've been cautioned by a couple of people that don't believe everything that you see coming out of the Chinese media, particularly on topics like this. So taking at face value, 30,000 people blows me away. Now we don't know, huge. you know, did the 30,000 people really exist? Were they all actually involved in pig butchering or were they in trouble for some other reason? Was the entire story fabricated? Hard to tell, but it, the impact, I think it gives you a sense, just the fact that anyone could claim that many people were arrested gives you a sense of the scale of the operations that stand behind these scams, right? This is not one person sitting at a computer in a dark room, you know, trying to hack your crypto wallet. This is highly organized and industrialized uh, criminal activity, which is- It's, it's a business. Wild. Yeah, it really is. You're right. It's someone set up a business and probably grow grew organically and then hired more and more people and was successful. And it's probably runs like a business. You wonder if there's venture capital funding for uh, cr <laughs> criminal underground. Like, how does that work? Although you do hear stories of there being with these pig butchering call centers, the human trafficking yeah, dimension as well, human slavery, where people are forced to to do this with no pay. So there's that dimension as well that we've uncovered in parts of the world as well. Yeah, which is just terrible. It's kind of a double victimization there on both sides of the transaction. So hopefully the arrest China talked about has some positive impact for us in the new year. On to another topic, fentanyl. I'm going from sad to terribly sad, I guess, in, yeah. in order here. But, you know, fentanyl has become... Uh, I think the number one killer of uh, young people in the United States. It's a terrible drug. And I've spent a lot of time this year trying to understand where the fentanyl comes from. And interestingly, the research team was able to discover and actually map, because of cryptocurrency, the flow of funds happening between Mexican cartels 
who are the primary people importing fentanyl into the United States. And these chemical precursor shops that primarily operate out of China, I thought this was amazing research. I mean, it uh, it really uncovered the criminal network that exists in producing illicit drugs. Yeah, it was a big effort from our cybercrime lead, Eric Dardine, and the team on the investigation side. We identified addresses associated with precursor shops, which are selling the chemicals that can create fentanyl. And there are these shops that accept cryptocurrency, and we can identify them through both advanced techniques, but also our investigators who have large law enforcement networks. And then from there, we trace the funds and see are able to see that the funds are making their way to Mexico and then see what happens from there. And so we can create these maps that document the flow of funds. And, you know, there are tens of millions of dollars, which is definitely a lower bound of how this is happening because it's just the addresses that we know about. But it's been extremely exciting to be able to get this in the hands of the right people and know that you just are able to follow the money and maybe lead to an account freeze and stop or disrupt one of some of these networks that are bringing such highly damaging chemicals that eventually make it into the United States. Yeah, this is where I think crypto presents an opportunity. It's not the criminal act that needs to be focused on in this case. It's the lead that can be used to facilitate disruption of the the narcotics trafficking itself. Yeah, and uh, we were getting into some more experimental stuff that is not just limited to this kind of work, but some of our researchers on our team found that some of these purchases actually come before border seizures. So are we getting into a point with crypto analysis where we have enough data where we can get predictive, where we can alert law enforcement maybe to bulk orders or be on the lookout. And then uh, certainly you can break it down by maybe certain groups spend a certain amount of time before, I guess, the product goes across the border. So we're in the very early stages of this, but there has been a positive outcome in terms of using the funds arriving at distribution sites, not just in this case, but also in ransomware, investing in maybe a ransomware infrastructure, and then the ultimate attack as like an early warning detection of some of these crimes happening. Yeah, I'm all about getting to real time and predictive in 2024. That's my goal for the year. We've challenged the product team to make some progress there. What's going on with our friends in North Korea? And I say friends in the most sarcastic way possible. They're obviously not our friends, but they don't seem to be slowing down at all. They love stealing crypto. No, they're not slowing down at all. And we'll put out the numbers in our crime report, but I can we can say that it's not slowing down. And sometimes the high level numbers that are released related to North Korea or hacking in general can feel, it's hard to draw, to extract a real trend from the volume because you will have maybe 50, $10 million hacks and then one $700 million hack. So it's very outlier dependent. So the threat and the looming threat of North Korea as an attacker is, for example, if they breach a system that has 700 million, they're going to take all 700 million. So 
the fact that the, some attacks are only taking $10 million means that that was all they had access to. Yeah. And so this is a major problem. Uh, as we talked about before, they're quick to adapt and they're methodical and they know where the kind of the weak points are in the industry and don't care about getting caught. And so Chainalysis, I'm proud to say, is the leading expert on North Korean money laundering tactics. And so are tracing these funds down, actively freezing funds at a pretty high rate from some of these hacks. And so we talk, we were talking about that sometimes in the money laundering section of the crime report, we'll see funds arriving at an exchange from North Korea. But that doesn't mean that it was necessarily laundered. We've, we have to appreciate that a lot of times these funds can get, get frozen as well. So and we're yeah. seeing that happen at a higher rate. Yeah, I think that's what's exciting is as, you know, yes, the North Korean hackers are adapting tactics, you know, you take down Tornado Cash, they start using Sinbad, you take down Sinbad, they start using something else next. But the good guys are adapting too. And I yeah. think we're figuring out how to make this much less profitable a scheme, right? It's one thing to steal the funds from an exchange or from individual wallets or a DeFi protocol. It's another thing entirely to turn that into hard currency that they can actually use. Exactly. And so I think I'm, I'm excited to see the good guys actually rack up some wins here, either on recovery or freezes and just make it really hard for them to make money. Let's go have them focus on some other target other than crypto in 2024. Yeah, and we're excited to announce what the next Sinbad is as well in the current oh, report. So. I can't wait. I can't yeah. wait. Well, maybe last question for you. NFTs. Are NFTs dead? Is there anything happening in that ecosystem? I actually pulled the data for this morning for this, and I don't know what you would ex have expected, but it wasn't as down as as I would have thought, uh, something like 600,000 sales in last month. And wow. yeah, NFT sales just on Ethereum. And so it depends on what you mean by dead, really, yeah. but there's still an active space. It's kind of flatlining if you were to look at it over time. Last month, what did see a surge, but nothing compared to the previous month's highs of NFTs when we really saw the boom. But a lot of that was people high frequency trading of NFTs. <laughs> and you wonder what is the point of an NFT? Is yeah. it a collectible? Or is it something that's meant to be traded a million times in a day? And if you're kind of weeding out that activity, then one thing that we've talked about a lot at Chainalysis is, you know, what's real usage versus kind of some of this hyper trading activity that makes volumes look really high. And how do we know what the right measure of real activity is? So I would say they're low, but it's not as low as you might think. I think that's super interesting, actually. Like you've peeled off the high frequency traders. You maybe peeled off some of the people that were really just in it to kind of like wash trade or arbitrage uh, certain collections. And you've got the people who are actually in it for the art or in it for the the collectible experience and they're they're still holding on to their onto their nfts that's exciting well kim this has been absolutely fantastic it's always a pleasure to have you on the show thanks for sharing all the knowledge and we'll probably have you back again soon to talk crypto crime report once we get into that publication cycle yeah thanks for having me and i can't wait to talk about crime more <laughs> hey there thanks for listening to another episode if you enjoyed what you heard today do me a favor 
Post a review, tell us what you liked. Even better, share the podcast with your friends. And of course, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. During today's show, Kim referenced some great data from 2023 editions of the Crypto Crime Report and the Geography of Cryptocurrency Report. We've already started posting excerpts from our upcoming 2024 Crypto Crime Report as well. To download the full reports and get an early preview of the 2024 edition, head down to the show notes.